Welcome to Watershed Partnerships, where we explore breakthrough collaborations to build great communities. I'm Lewis Smith. When I march with and help organize with these lieutenants of Martin Luther King in 1969 and 70, I saw this tremendous love that they had for themselves, for each other, and for their community, however they defined it. And this tremendous love that they had for Martin Luther King Jr. They weren't afraid or ashamed to express that love. And that was also this grounding that I had. The Dalai Lama has said that too much of a self-centered attitude brings isolation, and that the result of this isolation is loneliness, fear, and anger. For organizations and communities, such self-centered isolation can be equally unhealthy. It is often a crisis, possibly born of conflict or an unexpected tragedy, that forces us out of that isolation and self-centeredness. The gift of a crisis takes us out of our comfort zones to bring us into the connecting dynamic that solves problems and creates community. And it may often be the people who grew out of that pain of these conflicts who see the new connections, whose passion drives them to find creative bridges across our divides. It is these passionate, loving people who bless our communities with truly integrative, visionary leadership. My guest today is Setu Jones, a prolific public artist, community advocate, college teacher, and watershed manager whose love of community takes so many forms and offers so many points of connection. Jones's journey began in South Minneapolis, where a loving family of artists celebrated his creative interests. He studied at Morehouse College, immersed himself in the civil rights movement of the late 1960s, and came to believe in the power of art and culture to foster change. Jones's formal education has taken him from the University of Minnesota to earn degrees in landscape design and environmental history to the Harvard Graduate School of Design. He served as Millennium Artist-in-Residence at 651 Arts in Brooklyn, New York, and his art has been exhibited at the Walker Arts Center, the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, the American Craft Museum in New York, and the Renwick Gallery in Washington, D.C., his works of public art, now over 40 in number, may be found at light rail transit stations, Nicollet Mall, the Minneapolis Sculpture Garden, and the Nashville Farmer's Market, and have won numerous awards gracing our public places with beauty and meaning. Viewing his work as tending the soil of community through art, Jones is passionate about soil, water, and urban food systems. He was a founder of Frogtown Farms, one of the largest urban organic farms in the United States, and he's now completing 15 years of service on the board of the Capital Region Watershed District, where he has expanded the conversation to pursue policies of inclusion and environmental justice. 
Jones has said that the aim of his work is to not only support the community where the work lives, but to channel the love and contributions of the community itself. We will hope to find a way to share Jones's works of art more visually, perhaps in a separate video podcast, which could include his welcoming hand sculpture, cast in an ironworks just 20 feet from where George Floyd was killed, his Blues for George series, which memorializes George Floyd in the streets and boarded storefronts, and his African Mask series. After our conversation, I will come back to wrap up with three takeaways we hope you will find useful in your community collaborations. Here's my conversation with Setu Jones. Setu Jones, thank you so much for making time today for this conversation about your artistic journey, community collaboration, and your work in watersheds. Thank you, Lewis. I mean, it's an very flattering and uh, an honor to be here with you, man. Uh, with all the work that you have done in the public's realm and with watersheds. It's an honor. Well, uh, we could go on and on about honor, but uh, what what occurs to me is you are just ubiquitous in the work uh, in in public spaces uh, all throughout the region. I I can't uh, bump into any work I've done without finding work that you've done. And so for the longest time, I've been interested in and just learning so much more. And so I wonder, you know, you have so much formal training in landscape design, environmental history, at the Harvard uh, Graduate School of Design. Uh, But let's go back to your early roots. I think it's always interesting with anyone to trace where their professional calling uh, came from. But especially with artists, where was that first awakening for you that that you felt called to be a creator? You know, I have been so fortunate and blessed, and I thank the world <laughs> and the creator for dropping me into a family that was so supportive and loving uh, and creative. You know, I had an uncle that painted, my father painted, uh, going through, my mother just passed in March. And so we're going through some things. And I found this envelope with all of my father's certificates and degrees in it, something that he never really shared with. I knew that he was doing this stuff when I was a kid, but, you know, dad, uh, got his AA degree in art at the university. He studied printing. Uh, He studied sign painting and was doing all this work. And finally uh, gave up when somebody told him that we don't hire black people. Uh, And that was here in the early 50s in Minnesota. Gave up wanting to make art. He never stopped making art, but had to worked at the post office until he retired and had a business in South Minneapolis. Saying all that to say, I had these aunties that sewed, uh, in, and, and, and seeing all of this, I never thought that I couldn't do it. 
I also had this deep love of nature and had an auntie that used to call me little George Washington Carver. And I would think to myself, I'd just bristle at that and think, why would I want to be like that old man? As the only images that we saw of George Washington Carver at that time were him in his laboratory uh, or out in the field as this old man. And, and here I am, this old ball-headed man now. But my auntie knew of my love for nature, and she also knew that George Washington Carver was a painter and it was his artwork that led him because he always painted plants and was studying painting and uh, one of his instructors told him you should study botany and the rest is history from that and so I had this encouragement I was drawing from an early age and uh, your father took you to Chicago Oh, actually, <laughs> you know, I had uh, my my family on um, my father's side has been in Minnesota for four generations since the 1870s. And my on my mother's side, uh, they have been my mother's born in Chicago and they uh, those folks, my grandparents, great grandparents are part of the great migration that led folks from the South, from Mississippi to Chicago. And so we'd spend our summers in Chicago and uh, we would also spend our, uh, our winters sometimes, winter vacation in Chicago. Anyway, we'd go back and forth to Chicago. It was my grandfather that in the early 70s took me to the what was at that time called the Wall of Respect. And it was this mural. Actually, it was a mixed media work on an abandoned building, or actually a boarded up building in Southside Chicago. And that blew my mind. Here were these artists, these African-American artists that were creating this work that was multimedia that told the story of the times. And that was the thing that helped launch the work that I did with scale. And I saw that folks could create this work in outside of the museum walls and on the walls of the streetscape. You know, so all of that stuff helped shape and mold my mind at that time to think about art not only as something that could um something that could really frame my vision but also something that could change the world and so that's the work that i've been trying to do since that time amazing and so then uh uh morehouse college is a part of your story yeah and then the the civil rights movement in the 60s yeah damn man you've done a lot of research on me a lot of digging (laughs) you know i uh yeah well you know i went to morehouse but only lasted there a year morehouse college is an all all male primarily african-american school uh is graduated folks like julian bond and martin luther king yeah 
and uh, and a whole slew of folks, Spike Lee, uh, you know, and and so I went there because after growing up in South Minneapolis and dealing with the uh, political and the racial uh, hassles that I had to go through coming up. You know, I told myself, I'm never going to go to school with white people again. So I went to Morehouse and I found out that my problem was not white people, but with school, period. <laughs> and so, you know, I got down there and it was too good of a thing. I partied and loved it, uh, being and, uh, at that time, this rich, deep, black culture. Uh, yeah, it was just too much fun. So I came back to finish up at the University of Minnesota over time. And it took me a long time to get through school. <laughs> but Morehouse and, and that time in the South, um, and, and I suppose back here in Minnesota, was a, a deeply active time in terms of oh, civil absolutely. rights movement. You know, and, and I'm making too much light of the fun that I had down there. But that was a year after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And uh, at that time, uh, black folks were really trying to extend their energy into really gaining political power. And were, uh, there were running folks there was a candidate for mayor during the time I was down there, an African-American candidate for mayor. And so I got deeply involved in the politics to try and elect the first African-American mayor of Atlanta. And so here I was a year after the death of Martin Luther King, walking with and marching with many of his lieutenants, with Jesse Jackson. Um, with Hosea Williams, uh, protesting and, and, and actively working and registering folks so that they could vote for uh, this African-American mayor. And that also galvanized me, uh, being on the street uh, during that time. And then even coming back here and getting... Uh, involved in the rich political mix. Uh, you know, I studied Marxism. I was introduced to that through uh, the Black Panther Party. Uh, and then getting connected and swept up with cultural nationalist thought. <laughs> and then, you know, at times studying... Buddhist thoughts, <laughs> uh, you know, looking at all these different philosophies of the time and using that all, that rich, oh, then the culture itself. You know, I was listening to Miles Davis at the same time I was listening to Freddie Hubbard and um, listening to Wilson Pickett and <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, Marvin Gaye, all of that uh, helped shape my philosophic foundation. Uh, Marvin Gaye 
with Mercy, Mercy Me, uh, where he uh, sang this piece to the ecology and the environment, blew me away. You know, and all of that, and, and then understanding that uh, the Black Panther Party, one of its, one of the things that really inspired me and still hangs with me was their free breakfast program. You know, they were offering free, bre- free breakfast to young African-American kids primarily in, these, in their communities wherever there was a chapter of the Black Panther Party all over the country. And at one point, I had read that they were serving 10,000 kids every morning to, with, to breakfast all over the country. It almost embarrassed the Nixon administration to create a free breakfast program. And, and they recognized that in order for folks to advance, in order for us to move politically, progressively, that folks would have to have good nutrition. So all of this stuff was like shaping and giving me this understanding of the environment. In addition, one of the things that I didn't say is that um, my crazy father and all my crazy uncles and grandfather were these mad Minnesota fishermen. And so they had me and many of my cousins out in boats almost every weekend. (laughs) We were sampling, enjoying, and embracing the rich environment of Minnesota. And so all of that, like, helped put me on this direction to really want to um, enhance our – enhance and many times save our environmental context that the environmental context that we live in but going around the country now i've been doing these meals in different communities and and really it's about the local and i tell folks that all the time i can help and give you a template but really it's something that you're going to have to do on your own and also engaging artists to be a part of that process uh has really been important and so these meals have been ways to have over-the-table conversations about race, about class, about food justice, and uh, leaving the table with a pledge to work actively to change the food system. So that's the undercurrent or the underlying reasons why I've been involved in wanting to do that. You know, once again, working on the environment or working with the environment. So, uh, and you also have been teaching about urban food systems at the University of Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, uh, uh, you know, I, you, at the very beginning, you started out with my educational background. And I tell folks all the time, I'm going to out myself and tell folks, well, I've been making art for uh almost 50 years now, I don't have a degree in art. 
you know, my training and educational training, as you pointed out, was in landscape design and environmental history. I am a student or a graduate of the ag school, the St. Paul campus, not the studio arts program. And so I did have a, a position teaching in the MFA program at Goddard College that's based in Washington State, have a low residency program where students could get their MFA. But the teaching that I've done at the University of Minnesota, uh, both as an adjunct and both, uh, you know, co-teaching classes, have not been in the arts, but have been in uh, uh, teaching in the urban studies program, uh, urban food policy, and also teaching a class on stormwater management and urban studies. And, uh, and also at the university, it's been food-related uh, uh, classes as well. So yeah, that's the, the teaching that I've done there. And, and still teaching. And read, but you know, I say still teaching, but I'm learning, man. I mean, I'm an old man here, and I still learn so much from each one of the farm managers at Frogtown Farm that have come through over the years. You know, it just blows my mind uh, what I don't know. Uh, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's just been this learning process. Well, integrating food and, and soil and your art and community, I, I, I saw one of your uh, descriptions of your work as attending the soil of community through art. Yeah. And there's uh, a passion and a love for what community means to you that comes through in so many ways. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that passion. Yeah, you know, I, uh, and this goes back to what I was also speaking about earlier. When I marched with and helped organize with these lieutenants of Martin Luther King in 1969 and 70, you know, I saw this tremendous love that they had for themselves, for each other, and for their community, however they defined it. And this tremendous love that they had for Martin Luther King Jr. You know, all of that, I mean, they weren't afraid or ashamed to express that love, to be affectionate with each other. And that was also this grounding that I had. And, and about 10 years ago, I started actually studying love and looking at the way that Martha King defined it in particular. Um, and, you know, and he went back to all these Greek definitions of love and the four different types of love. And the thing that really he focused on more than anything was agape and the love for humankind. And that is this, and, and you know, if Martin Luther King were alive today, and I know people, you've heard people say this over and over again, but he would 
have also expressed, and he did in different ways, express this deep love for the planet, this deep love for the earth. I mean, all of that is a part of it. You know, in studying Buddhism, studying some African philosophies, uh, and studying some indigenous American philosophies, this great love and embrace that we have and should have for the earth. And so along with that love comes this deep well of passion. That's what drove folks here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, across the state, across the country, across the world. This deep love and passion put people out on the streets uh, to express their anger, their pain, and most importantly, their vision for the future. You know, we have this opportunity to rethink public safety and what it means today. And we need to think about this in a really holistic way. And so that means thinking about the earth as well. Uh, you know, 2017 was the United Nations, the UNESCO's uh, Year of the Soil. And uh, I spend time thinking about how we need to change the soils, especially in urban environments and throughout uh, Minnesota, throughout the world. But yeah, I mean, it all springs from the soil. And so I have been using both here and Frogtown Farm and all the other places I work, all these metaphors, these rich metaphors about cultivating, cultivating community, cultivating soil, cultivating, uh, cultivating art. Uh, I mean, it's all part of this growth that we need to experience and embrace. I mean, it's, um, you know, we shouldn't be afraid or hesitant to bring up love in forums like this or forums that, um, that we wouldn't normally do it in community forums. Uh, that is what drives me. And that's really what underlies my foundation. That's one of the things that I learned from my father, uh, my aunts and uncles, on um, both sides of my family, my grandparents and great-grandparents, is this love for each other's love for family, this love for community and the love of the world. You know, say too, one of the things that I hear you describing is uh, a, a sense of the, the passion uh, in this love of community uh, for, for change and addressing these vital issues. And it seems like um, I also like to um, uh, learn more about the practical aspect of collaboration. What, oh, yeah. uh, what is really involved in being a true collaborator? Because it seems like so many of our challenges are requiring us now to step across our boundaries, uh, uh, acknowledge our fears, talk openly about love, uh, and those all require skills 
of kind of uh, subordinating our egos and really right. uh, finding ways to collaborate with people that are different than us to get something uh, more powerful achieved. So I'm really struck as I look through all of your work and hear in this conversation these powerful roots of, of love for community and a sense of legacy, a sense of caring for the earth and place. There's something about your approach to collaboration, even in your public artworks, mm-hmm. where you are constantly engaged in collaborating with others. So can you, you know, open the hood and, and let <laughs> us have some insight into how you approach collaboration and what makes these collaborations successful? Ooh, you know, that's a big one. And, you know, and that's something that I am wrestling with right now. After 50 years of working with uh, neighborhood groups, working uh, with folks who are incarcerated, working with folks who are seniors, again, here I am a senior now, uh, working with young folks, you, you know, I my work needs to be recharged and working in this pandemic, um, it's forced me to rethink how, how we organize, how we work with folks, how, how do I collaborate with folks? I mean, that's a little side, but, uh, this is, I came to collaboration in the late 60s, early 70s, as I was explaining in that rich mix of culture. And I was working with different folks that felt that art should be put to the use and, uh, of, of changing the world. I mean, we need to bring art to the people in different ways and different contexts. And so, you know, it led me to create these murals, but, and, and create work on the streets, these, uh, and work to change the streetscape. And the first thing that I do with collaborative projects, well, the first thing, is to be invited, uh, and especially with communities outside of my own. You know, that's really key and important uh, to be invited. And then to listen and spend a great deal of time listening to folks. As you say, bearing your ego. Um, at the same time, you want, as an artist, to have this degree of integrity that allows you to follow your own passion and vision. You know, so that work uh, needs to have this blend. And so it means listening. It means respect. Uh, and like for create the community meal, this meal for 2000 people that I spent two years working on. I worked with an organization, sponsoring organization called Public Arts St. Paul. And they allowed me to go on this listening and eating tour 
we received a small grant where we could uh, we could pay neighbors to put on a meal, invite their neighbors, and I could come and just listen and gather food stories. And all of that helped shape the menu. It helped shape the art. Uh, and it really helped shape the design of this, this meal for 2,000 folks. And so every time I've done this in other places, I've spent time and actually worked with the organizers to listen, uh, to collect food stories at the very base of it. And that helps shape the piece. You want to have folks have ownership and claim ownership of a particular piece. But right now, I am pulling away a little bit. I am going to spend more time in my studio listening to my own inner voices help shape uh, the direction that I'm going to go in and how, and help shape how I'm going to spend this last season of my life. You know, I'm not quite sure what direction that's going to take me. So I am leaving a, a number of the volunteer positions that I've held for a long time. I'm leaving the board of Frogtown Farm. I'm leaving the Capital Region Watershed District uh, Board of Managers. And I'm going to spend some time doing some serious reflection. Unfortunately, in our society, we don't have time. We don't devote enough time for reflection. And I hope at the tail end of this period that I'm getting ready to go through, I come back stronger, more focused, and with more skills that, um, that this community can use. So, yeah, it, it's, I'm at this kind of different point now, too, in collaboration. Well, we're catching you at a rich time of, of transition. Well, I'm eager to hear great. more. Yeah. It comes through. Let's take just a moment to uh, dig into your service uh, for watershed work. Um, I, uh, I think for many people, uh, just the mere mention of a watershed district uh, uh, raises question marks. And so in Minnesota, right. we're blessed, as you know, to have these right. special purpose local units of government that manage water resources on a hydrologic boundary. Um, mm -hmm. And they have property tax authority. They can regulate development. Yeah. They can construct projects to restore and protect wetlands and streams and lakes. Uh, but really touching the soil and the water and trying to uh, really undo some of the sins of our, of our forebears uh, right. in development. Um, so how did you, uh, I can see, uh, you know, threads of your passions and interests coming to bear on watershed work, but it's such an unusual piece of service. How did you become interested? Well, you know, there again, uh, you know, it was my, it was my interest in nature that, that, uh, that drove me or gave me this, this passion for, Wanting to understand more about the water and watershed. And, you know, in graduate school, I took a course in uh, 
in water management, stormwater management. And that from and that just kind of blew me away. I mean, I hadn't really thought, even as an adult, in terms of the watershed and then placing myself and my community in the watershed and understanding that Minnesota, uh, in Minnesota, that there are over 80 different watersheds that have that are these political entities as you said that have the ability to levy taxes uh to come up with policies uh that have the ability to uh, issue permits you know so i thought well let me learn more about this and i attended a meeting uh for the Capital Region Watershed District years ago just to learn more about it. And I said, damn, I want to do this. <laughs> and, uh, and this is your I, local community watershed in St. Paul. I live in Frogtown in St. Paul, not too far away from the Capitol, uh, almost in the middle of the Capital Region Watershed District. Capital Region Watershed District located in Ramsey County. And Ramsey County is one of the smallest counties in the state of Minnesota. It's also the county that has the most impervious uh, surfaces, <laughs> a percentage of the most impervious uh, surfaces is in, than any county in Minnesota. And so it has its own set of challenges. It's also probably one of the most diverse uh, ethnically uh, watershed districts in Minnesota. So there are five folks that are on the board of management, board of managers in at the Capital Region Watershed District. And so I applied for a position, was appointed by the Ramsey County Board of Commissioners and have been reappointed uh, uh, five times. So that's for three year, five, three year terms. So that's a long time. 15 years of service. Yeah. What, what yeah. are you proudest of in, over that time in terms of your engagement? Well, two things. Yeah. One is that we created an, um, an equity and inclusion policy, a set of policies, uh, that, look at every one of our programs, to look at the way we contract, to look at staffing, and to ensure that the watershed district's board of managers, its programs, and its staff all look like and reflect the true ethnic, racial, and class diversity of St. Paul, of, of, the, of our watershed district, um, which is largely in St. Paul. So that's one thing I'm really proud of. I can step away knowing that that has been institutionalized and will continue on. The other thing that I'm really proud of is that we created an artist in residence program at the Capital Region Watershed District. So we have uh, uh, an artist on retainer. 
that works with us on a whole slew of, of initiatives that work with us on selecting artists that uh, were commissioned to create works for the new uh, renovated building that Capital Region is in. Uh, she has also helped um, commission artists to create works that help make the invisible visible. Uh, most stormwater management features are hidden. And so this, uh, the artists and residents has embedded herself in programs and in staff uh, so that now the staff will call upon her for, you know, a wide range of things. Uh, and so those are the two things I'm most proud of. Very significant. You know, uh, the idea of connecting art with watershed work, I think to many of uh, the people traditionally involved in, in watershed work from largely an engineering infrastructure perspective, right. don't right. naturally think initially of the relevance of art. It might seem like no. a frivolous yep. thing. Uh, uh -huh. But what you're talking about is bringing visibility to some of the key issues in the guts of truly managing water resources. And, and art can play that role. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and one of the things I didn't say, you'd mentioned Heritage Park. It was really there that I began to think about stormwater management and integrating artwork into stormwater management features. I was the artist on the design team that created a lot of the landscape features in Heritage Park. And so here I was designing great stormwater grates, uh, designing overlooks for new stormwater retention ponds, railings for those overlooks. And that was the thing that, and that, that really excited me. And, and so I've been doing other, uh, I've been artists on different design teams doing that. Uh, integrating that work and it's something that should be open to folks and, and during that process with heritage park i learned how to communicate i'm st and still learning how to communicate with engineers with scientists to uh help help me understand what they do and help me create work that uh, is, can be really integrated into the, into the stormwater features. And it's so vital, I think, uh, for um, our infrastructure to be understood and, and interpreted by community. Absolutely. And art is that bridge. Yeah. Yeah, they can be that bridge. One of the things that Capital Region has done is uh, when we make a grant to uh, any group to include stormwater features as a part of their project, a part of a development, we also 
ask that folks put up something to help explain or to show where or to uh, to and if the work is hidden, uh, to, especially to to highlight what that work does and where that work is and in some sort of uh, didactic plate or sign or something. I mean, so that folks can understand the the work of the region. People's, people uh, pay taxes and people literally, uh, taxpayers really have built capital region. And so this is one way that folks can see where their money is going. And art can help do that as well. You mentioned uh, your work uh, for the environment and for justice, and it brings to mind the environmental justice movement in which uh, we need to be uh, caring much more effectively for our environment with a a lens toward uh, racial justice and and uh, absolutely and inclusion um, and and I, I think people don't naturally think of watershed districts as being relevant to the environmental justice cause but you must oh, have absolutely. some suggestions for us absolutely I mean we know that the folks who will be hit the hardest uh, when uh, Folks that will be hit the hardest in climate change, and that's happening right now, are many times the poorest folks on the planet. And uh, there was just an article in the New York Times about uh, just a couple days ago about Bangladesh and how Bangladesh has literally lost land with rising seas. There was an article not too long ago that I had read, and I'm trying to remember what, where I read it, about... Um, how a group of black folks have pushed back on chemical, the cancer alley, they call it, along the Mississippi with all the petrol plants and chemical plants that are located within and right outside of African-American communities. Uh, And here in St. Paul, you know, the folks that utilize the tools of the watershed district are the folks who many times need it the least. And those are the folks who are in communities that are upper income, are uh, mostly white. Uh, and while they <laughs> might be in some of the higher reaches of the of the watershed district. So if there's any flooding to occur, it might not really happen to a lot of those folks, all with the exception of Highland. There's a high water table in in Highland right now, and which is an issue that has been uh, there for a while. But where I live in Frogtown, Frogtown got its name because at one time it was wetlands. It was... uh, home to the city of frogs is uh, one early archbishop called it and um and so if there's any of these 100 year 500 year rains that keep 
uh, occurring with greater and greater frequency, it's going to be folks who are my neighbors that will be affected the most. Uh, and we don't really think about storm setting off uh, any social upheaval, upheaval or unrest. And it could be. It could be. Uh, I hate to sound like the a pessimist, but what we need to make sure that uh, stormwater management features and ways to manage uh, these heavy storms are something that uh, affect every community, not just the communities that know about us. And so it means this big uh, campaign that we've been on for years now to tell folks, uh, to help folks understand what a watershed, what a watershed is and what uh, uh, a watershed management district can do for them personally and for the community. I'm just hearing that uh, what you've said about uh, inclusion and being Mm -hmm. much more intentional about making sure all the voices of the community are heard in watershed work and that the interests of many communities that historically been not represented uh, in the leadership or or staffing of of watershed districts need to be at the table in order for the watershed work to be effective. Absolutely. And Absolutely. that that's not just a matter of of uh, effectiveness, but also of justice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, Setu, you have uh, really achieved so many remarkable things, and there are so many threads to your work that uh, create such a rich, rich tapestry of uh, passion for justice, for a love of community for Mm -hmm. a love of the soil and the earth and water and how we all can be better stewards and partners and collaborators. I'm so grateful for this time with you, C2. Thank you so much. Thank you. And as I said before, it's an honor and very flattering to get a call from Lewis Smith to be a part of something else. Yeah. So you have the same like multidisciplinary approach to changing the world yourself, man in your life, in your family life, and then in this professional life. So thank you. It's just such an honor to spend time with you. Martin Luther King Jr. explained his vision of beloved community through work that seeks justice without violence, through engagement that does not seek to defeat or humiliate but to win friendship and understanding. Setu Jones offers a life's testimony to beloved community through the power of love and connection. His vision of tending the soil of community through art has brought beauty and meaning to our public places, nutrition and health to food deserts, and greater inclusion and justice in the care of our watersheds. Here are three takeaways from our conversation. 
Number one, embrace your art. Setu Jones' journey began with a loving, extended family that supported his desire to create. And, guided by his grandfather to works like Chicago's Wall of Respect, he began to see how to take his creations to scale, to achieve impact and inspire change. Great community collaboration is, in many ways, a work of art. It is creative expression of deep human needs to connect in community. Number two, find the love. Jones's recollection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s lieutenants, grown men, unafraid and unashamed to express their love for themselves, for each other, and for their community, was an empowering foundation for his lifelong journey to seek justice. It is this deep longing for love and connection, and the courage to express it, that fuels works of beauty and transformational social change. Setu Jones's grounding in this love has enabled him to not only support the community where his work lives, but to channel the love and contributions of the community itself. Number three, listen where you are invited. Setu Jones has emphasized in his public work that the first order of business is to be invited into a community where he is working. That respectful humility feels like an important place to begin, whether you are an artist, consultant, or leader of an institution. Next, he stresses the importance of deep listening in order to ground his work in expressions of community need and direction. Jones speaks to a careful balance, integrating this community direction with his own artistic passion. Great expressions of collaboration begin with humble listening. Embrace your art, find the love, and listen where you are invited. That's it for this episode. We hope you will subscribe to and share the Watershed Partnerships podcast and log in to watershedpartnerships.com where you can find out much more about upcoming episodes and share with us a story of an inspiring collaboration you'd like us to know about. Until then, may you tend the soil of your community through your own loving artistic creations.